Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, another Wednesday recording session podcast. Here we come. What's going on? Not so much, Steve. Things are going pretty well. A uh, little bit of a humble brag this morning. The practice of groundedness just eclipsed 15,000 copies sold in its first two months. So it's a nice round number. And if it would have been 10,000, I would have been happy. And if it would have been 20, I would have been happy. So it's kind of arbitrary, but uh, it was neat to see. That's uh, a small stadium where the people that are reading the book, learning from the book, growing, uh, getting better, and hopefully uh, feeling better too. So that was a nice way to start out the day. Oh, that's fantastic. And I'm just going to put it out there. A lot of times on this podcast, we ask you to get the book. Instead, what I'm going to ask is if you have read it, if you are one of those 15,000 people, share it. Send, you know, send a copy to a friend or even just recommend it to three people who you think will find value out of that. If you do that, it'll help Brad, help us, and it'll help the people who you're sharing it with. Love it. So let's roll into the main topic for today which is the value of doing real things in the world. And I'm going to tee this up with a a quick story. So when the news broke on Bill Gates' um, questionable behavior with female colleagues and just his broader um, kind of loyalty and sexual loyalty to his wife, I texted a close friend and mentor who's old, wise guy. He's been around the block a few times. And mind you, this is also after Andrew Cuomo. This is after Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. This is after, of course, Donald Trump. And something about the Bill Gates thing, probably because I really looked up to the guy and, and liked him, it got under my skin. So I texted this mentor and I said, what is it about money, status, fame, and power that turns you into an egotistical jerk? Is it just automatic that once you hit a certain status, you'll become an asshole? And my mentor responded, and he's in his 60s, very simply, I'm getting more weight equipment. And that was his response. And because I know him, It only took me about a minute to figure out what he was talking about. What he is saying is that lifting weights, pushing yourself in your basement alone stops you from becoming an egotistical jerk as you gain money, status, power. So that is just one example of doing real things in the world. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about other examples and get into some theories as to why doing real things has such a humbling, grounding effect. Oh, man, I love that story because I think. I, I, I think it gets to the, you know, the heart of this matter. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to quote another one of our uh, good friends and colleagues, uh, Dan John, who's a strength coach. <laughs> and I remember the first time I met Dan over, uh, we were both um teaching actually at at St. Mary's University over in uh, in the UK and he was describing kind of what his life 
is like right now. And Dan had coached at the highest level. He'd been a strength coach for professional basketball, NBA teams, and done all this stuff. And he just says, you know, Steve, like every morning, you know, I have my gym in my garage and I work out and anybody is welcome to show up and people do. And there's just something about like having this workout that grounds my day, that centers my day. And I, and I think that's what we're kind of getting at. And I know we're talking about lifting a little bit. It could be running. It could be anything in the world. And that's what we're going to try and get at. But doing things that are concrete, that have, you know, clear success, failures, emotions and feelings of maybe discomfort or even elation that come with it based on, you know, that the, the result that is coming, that comes about lifting or running or doing things, building real things. I think it just adds an element that maybe 50 years ago, we didn't have to really consider because everyone was kind of doing something real. But now in the internet world, and maybe even more so after Facebook has transitioned to meta and the metaverse, which will take us away from real things even more so, doing real things is becoming a need. Yeah. And we know that this is a need, right? There is decades of research in a field called self-determination theory um, with studies from all sorts of angles showing that mastery or this progress over time where you can observe results and trace them back to yourself is absolutely core to human flourishing, well-being, mental health. So if you think about the knowledge economy, there are fewer and fewer chances for that kind of mastery. In many jobs, it is very hard to objectively say I succeeded or failed. What gets in the way? Office politics, whether or not a client had a fight with their spouse that morning, uh, the partner at the firm's opinion of someone's work, the fact that some VPs and high-level managers want to hire people just so they can feel more powerful, but those people don't really have that much to do. It is so subjective in so many crafts, whether or not you did a quote unquote good job. I feel very fortunate as a writer that at least I get to produce a book, but whether or not that book is quote unquote good, it is just totally subjective. That is so different than whether or not I hit a deadlift. Either the bar comes up and I lock out or I don't. I do not get that in my knowledge economy work. I get that in the gym. And I think it's so important. I'll give one other story about this to take us away just from the world of lifting weights. Um, one of my longtime clients is an executive at a big professional services firm, easily over a thousand people, and he's in the C-suite. And he is known by all of his colleagues to be the most humble, understated, calm, equanimous leader at the company. 
when shit hits the fan and everyone's freaking out, he just kind of can smile in the midst of it all and take productive action. And for two hours a day, three days a week, he works on wood in his basement. So he builds furniture. And guess what? If the table doesn't stand, you can't come up with excuses. You can't slack the other executive to make up a story. You can't have your underlings tell you that it stands because they're scared of you. Nope, the table just doesn't stand. And if it does stand, it's not because people wanted to say yes to make you happy. It's because you built the table well. And if the table's close to standing, but something breaks, freaking out doesn't help. Calmly fixing it does. So it's no wonder that this person is such a wonderful, humble, relatable, calm, wise executive. It has nothing to do with his MBA and everything to do with the fact that he's a woodworker. Man, I love that story. I think that's such a, a good example. And I think it it's a good example because it takes us out of our world of kind of doing real things of exercise and doing real things and creating something that is concrete. And I think that's what we're kind of getting at is one of the benefits of doing real things is seeing that competency, seeing that progress in very concrete terms when normally or in the knowledge work economy, as you pointed out, it's more fluid and nebulous. We can rationalize, justify, excuse our way through things, right? So having something with some concrete finish is incredibly important. And I think you hit the nail on your head on the head there when you said, I do not get this from my writing, podcasting, whatever, right? I'm the same, obviously. But people think, oh, you put a book out in the world, that's something concrete. Yes, to a degree. But whether it succeeds or not, whether it's determined as like, you know, good or not, has a high degree of luck and a high degree of, uh, you know, things that are honestly outside of our control. But if you go back to woodworking or go back to lifting weights or go back to running, like there is, yes, there's luck involved and all that stuff, but there's a high degree of control over if I do this work, I'm going to see A, B, or C result or progress. And I think that is important. And then there's one other thing that I think you hit on there that is, I th think is worth considering and maybe um, you know discussing a little bit is having a hobby now is exceedingly rare, right? I, I, I think hobbies like doing word work, maybe making, I don't know, stained glass, whatever, whatever it is, quilting for others. I, I think hobbies are being replaced by, you know, well, how am I going to spend this downtime? Well, I'll get on my phone, scroll Netflix, etc. And I realize I'm sounding really old now, but I think the act of consuming has replaced the act of like doing or crafting or creating. And I think that again is somewhere where people used to get this like concreteness in their life. 
but because hobbies are becoming rarer and rarer, we're we're not fulfi- we're fulfilling that need in our workplace. We're not fulfilling that need in our hobby. So where do we get it? Right, and it's not just hobbies, Steve. I mean, if you think about daily chores of life, um, more and more is now done by technologies. So in the past, you'd have to wash all your dishes by hand because there wasn't dishwasher technology. You'd have to do laundry by hand. Um, I know so many people that got Roombas, the automatic vacuums, and started saying how much they miss vacuuming because vacuuming is something real in the world. Like the carpet is dirty. You physically roll this thing over it and then the carpet is clean. And now you've got a little robot doing it. So... This isn't to say that these technologies are inherently good or bad. It just takes away something that is so central to what helps us feel good and really makes us human. And if you think about the evolution of our species on like a 24-hour clock, for over 23 and a half hours, probably 23 hours and 58 minutes, our species would do real things in the world all day. We'd hunt, we'd gather. And then we'd sit by the fire and talk about those real things and then rinse and repeat. So it is very foreign to us to live in such an intellectual, cerebral, interconnected world where it is extremely hard to have a table that stand or doesn't, a bar that moves or doesn't, a lap that was 60 seconds or 62 seconds, um, and so on and so forth. So two things there that I think are important, and I'm going to start with this, because a couple weeks ago, you called me on the phone, as you do, you know, five, six, seven, 25 times a day. Not a real uh, thing. Uh, <laughs> but I I answered it, and then after a minute or two, I'm like, Brad, I'll call you back. I am mowing the lawn. And you were like, yes, go mow the lawn. That is like the realest thing you can do. I love mowing the lawn. Right? And, and it and it sounds a little like, oh, come on, guys, like mowing the lawn. But like, what are you doing? You're spending an hour like pushing this thing, seeing the results, the grass being cut. And then you're like, great, I don't have to do this until, you know, the next week or what have you. So there's like reality in it. So that's number one. When you talked about vacuuming, I want to point that out. And then the second thing that I think is important there is like that evolutionarily, you know, if we've only spent a couple minutes not doing real things, let's think about that in terms of the uh, hormones and neurochemicals, which often like drive us towards action. So in this case, you can look at things like noradrenaline and dopamine, like those things, what did they, they do? They like prepared and, and drove us towards action of you know going for a hunt and getting food or gathering food but at the end like those things got shut off because we made our kill or we didn't right we found our berries and our fruit or we didn't there was an actual result so it was this nice kind of fluid of like, oh, we've got these neurochemicals designed to like make us explore, chase, go after a quote unquote goal. Um, But there was a real like definitive endpoint that either ended with like satisfaction 
or like, oh crap, we didn't get the animal, so I must double my efforts like tomorrow when I go out to hunt. And I think so many things today like don't have that definitive concrete endpoint or satisfaction, uh, which gives us a lot of these kind of like neurochemical hormonal craziness that we see in the world today. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that, that, that is the case, I think for doing real things in a nutshell. Um, I think there's also a community element that is super important. So, um, I'm, again, I'm going to use what I know, which is strength training and in an office community, you're very lucky to have people that you can really trust and where everything is aligned and you're being measured the same way. There's generally some concern about politics or your position being taken or turf wars and all these things that are real parts of organizations and good organizations minimize these things, but I think they're inherent to lots of humans working together in the knowledge economy. Well, in a strength training community, it's very clear, like if the bar moves or not, and y'all are going through the same thing. And sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you're going to lift more than your partner. Sometimes you're going to lift less, but you have the shared experience of doing something that is so concrete, so objective, and that makes you uncomfortable. So the communities that form in these areas, they form around real things. And I have no doubt, and I'm thinking through this on this, the fly, so maybe I have 1% doubt because normally I'd like to go look at research, but I have very little doubt that the reason that communities around running, strength training, woodworking, mechanics, gardening, sculpting, arts, pottery, the reason that those communities are so strong and people derive so much meaning in those is because it's a group of people doing real things in the world together. Yeah, I mean, I would 100% agree. I'm not even going to, I'm normally a research guy, but I'm not even going to say I need that because like that's the experience, right? And your experience in strength training and football, like my experience, especially in running, like you have these moments, you have these experiences. I like to say uh, with any in the past when I was coaching college athletes, that shared discomfort, you have this, this moment, this place where you're going to see people at their highest highs, their lowest lows. You're going to see, see people like exceed their own expectations, but at the same point, break down and cry right? And I, I think that vulnerability, that doing difficult things together, like leads to that inherent trust and builds that trust. And I think that's why so many in the workplace or so many of these bonding retreats or experiments or things that you can sign up for often try to mimic this and not very well, but they try and do it often horribly, but they try and do, you know, physical uh, activity and, 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 and it doesn't work, right? Because it's like, oh, let's do this kind of hard thing. And you don't have the same environment because it's not actually real. It's like contrived trust fall type work. Right. 
Yeah, 100%. I, I wonder if this is why whenever I'm trying to get you and Hillary to move to Asheville, it's not only about like being able to do this kind of thing live and work on our writing projects together, but I also always include like, and we could both like train, even though I don't run and you don't really strength train. I just like it. It's a necessary ingredient to my ideal world of us being in person together is we'd also train together, but we don't do the same thing and we're not pro athletes. But um, you're making me realize, I think that's because it's like you get this shared experience um, from from doing something real, even if it's a different thing. And I think that as a strength athlete, I can relate much more to a woodworker or a sculptor than I can to like someone whose whole existence is in a bureaucracy, even if they're also like, you know, a quasi athlete. Um, so... Yeah, it's just it's it's really neat. And it's and it's it's personally now I'm talking, it's a big part of the reason why I still strength train. Like y'all heard on the podcast, I don't know, maybe two months ago, I was going through one of my normal rough patches uh with training. And COVID's made it worse, where it's like, why do I do this? It's hard, it's uncomfortable. Why do I spend an hour a day doing this? Why don't I just walk my dog? Blah, 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 blah. And while I cut out a lot of the um, kind of like peripheral stuff I was doing to get the workouts down to just 35 minutes, I'm so glad that I stuck with three to four days a week going in there, working the main movements, not because I was getting stronger, but because it just, it, it was real, you know, to use the title of my book, like nothing keeps you more grounded than 350 pounds on your back. And I wonder, like, you know, I doubt Elon Musk does this kind of thing. I doubt Bill Gates was doing this. I know he reads a lot of books, but like, was he sculpting? Was he strength training? Was he running? Elizabeth Holmes certainly wasn't. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't do anything but cheat at golf. So that's not real. Let's let's pause right there, and I'm going to give a plug to our community, our Patreon community, which is something that we're trying to create, and yes, it's virtual, and it's not quote-unquote as real, but what we're trying to do is get a lot of people from a diverse areas and backgrounds together, discuss these topics, like get to know one another, go deep on a book book clubs and mastermind groups and all this stuff. And that's that's our own little way of how do we branch this thing that isn't really kind of real, this podcast, these newsletters, into something where we get to know the person on the other side of the computer screen. So if you're interested in that, head on over to patreon.com slash the growth equation. Check it out. I think it's worth it. So now that we have, I think, made a pretty solid case um, as to the benefits of doing real things, why they make us feel better, more satisfied, more fulfilled, let's talk about how. So... I think it is imperative as a foundational habit or practice right up there with sleep, nutrition, and movement is to do something real in the world. 
And I separate it from movement because with some of my coaching clients, their movement is just a brisk walk, which I think is great. It's probably one of the healthiest, most sustainable ways to regularly move your body, but it doesn't have the same quality as really challenging yourself with a concrete result. So I'm going to go as far as to say that I think everybody should have some practice in their life that they visit at least once weekly where their mind-body connection is the only tool at their disposal and the results are very concrete and there is a way to make progress. Would you agree? And once a week is arbitrary. I mean, I think any more than that, or excuse me, any more than that is good. Any less than that, you're probably losing momentum in a lot of these activities because they all tend to take practice. Yes, I, I think so. And let me illustrate how how I see this in my life to kind of, you know, give an example. Because I think this once a week resonates. So I love running. It's real to me. To keep it real, one of my rules is it is just me out there, no headphones, no phone, just me, right? I also try and vary up the trails that I run so it's like I'm seeing different parts of nature. But in addition, like, you know, now that I'm quote unquote in my retirement phase of running, I could just go out every day and, and go for an easy run and it's like a walk. But what I try to do, and this gets to your once a week, is once a week, I do something, some workout that is moderately too very hard. And I think that is key, like right there, because no, I'm not trying to set a PR or run as fast as I did at some point. But my goal is to feel like real pain, discomfort, navigate that, like navigate that without wanting to quit. And I think that's important. And then I also have another rule, which I try and abide to, which is about at least once a year, often twice, I try to do what I, I call seeing God, which means I just go as hard as I can in some workout until I'm like collapsing on the ground. Done, uh, you know, it gets slower and slower as the years go by. But I just want to feel and get to that point of where I feel utterly exhausted because I don't think you can get to a more real place than feeling like you want to puke or just lying on the ground next to the track or trail or whatever and just just kind of being done. So that, that's how I process, you know, which relates to that, that progress, that feeling reality and once a week or more. Yeah, I love it. And I think that there is also um, some added value to doing the real thing with the mindset of a craftsperson. And what I mean by this, and I'll go back to the real thing world that I know best, which is the strength world. Dudes can go into a gym and bench press a ton of weight and just bounce the bar off their chest and their hips come up off the, the bench or they go curl a bunch of weight and they're jacking their backs. And that's real. And I think that's probably better than nothing. But that's also a little bit of like a machismo chest thumping, look how good I am, which can just feed ego. 
which is a lot different than actually learning the movements and the cues and the pausing. And I think that there's that learning element too of learning yourself, but also like learning in running, it would be learning how to pace appropriately, learning how to hold back and show restraint occasionally. Um, I think it's all part of the picture. So this isn't just a call to like do the equivalent of like going and throwing a bunch of eggs at the wall because it's real. I think what we're saying is find a real craft. And in addition to doing the thing, seek to improve at the thing using, you know, traditions and established methods for improvement. Um, And, you know, it's so easy now that I've been doing this for a while, you go to a gym and like, you can tell the dudes that just want to lift as much weight as possible so they can put it on their Instagram because every single lift of theirs would get red lighted in a competition. And you can tell all the dudes without their phones taking videos of themselves lifting are actually the dudes that are truly strong and would like do very well in competitions. Yeah. You know, and and I think I get it. It's part of reality of, of the world we're in now, but I think that that's why I said like, leave my phone at home. (laughs) Um, because it is so easy to take something that is real, like lifting or running or even like sculpting or making something and and turn it into something else by, you know, making the thing or the reason you're doing it to satisfy the gram, the Instagram or whatever have you, the social media. And I think that you just have to watch out for that. Not saying like never post things if you want to post things. I mean, Brad sends me videos of him lifting, you know, practically every, I don't know, every other day. That Um, is not true. Time out, time out, time out. I send videos of myself to Steve lifting at most twice a month. The only other person that gets videos of me lifting regularly is my strength coach. And it is never to tell me how good I am. It is always to tell me how I could be doing something better. I am Brad's own personal Instagram. That's- that is true. But Steve gives me no positive feedback ever. I think we've talked about this, but I, I, I sent Steve a 430 deadlift PR poll and he can't even acknowledge it with a joke about it. He just doesn't respond. I'm training, Brad. He's training me. Yep. He's... He's making sure that I'm dopamine fasting or whatever, keeping those keeping those receptors hungry. This is part of my coaching. You know, I can't I can't give you that that positive feedback that you so desire because I need you to keep doing the thing, lifting the that 400 pounds because of the pure joy that it gives you to do do that. So. Steve is beard in Ted Lasso. <laughs> All right. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> All right. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's it's no different, I think, than the research that clearly shows what often happens, particularly in uh, phenoms in the athletic world, is that our motivation and drive starts off like this intrinsic and pure thing. But success pulls us towards like that extrinsic drive which research and experience shows is is kind of ephemeral and works for a little bit but then doesn't and leads to burnout and all that good stuff uh my friend and colleague brian zuliger who's a sports psychologist likes to call it the um 
It's the lighter fluid version of motivation instead of the steady coal version that burns for a really long time. And we want the steady coal version. Um, But anyway, so that success pulls us towards that extrinsic. And I think in this regard, the same thing occurs when we start putting, you know, either the end result as bigger than it should be or the Instagramification or the social validation. Once we give those things more importance than they deserve, that like pulls our, our pure inner drive of doing something real for the sake of doing it real towards this other extrinsic thing, which eh, isn't as powerful and also like doesn't satisfy our basic needs and give us that positive bump that, you know, doing something real for the sake of it does. Yep. 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 I'm right there with you, man. Um, trying to think if I've got anything else to say about doing real things other than, uh, just a recap of it's becoming more rare, maybe rarer in the world. And there's a lot of intrinsic value. There's a lot of satisfaction that comes from it. You can build community. And most important to uh, to go back to where we started, I think it really helps to keep you grounded and, and humble in the world, particularly as you rise and get better in the more digital or knowledge economy. Because when that happens, it's very easy to start thinking that everything that you do is great because everyone's always applauding things. If you're in an organization where you have direct reports, they start to really respect you. They're less likely to challenge you, to say no to things. And suddenly you can get out of touch without even realizing it's happening, which is the most dangerous way possible to get out of touch. So trying to build a table or trying to plant a Japanese maple tree and nurse it to growth, trying to deadlift, trying to learn the difference between pacing a hard mile versus a moderate mile versus an all out mile, uh, trying to learn how to swim. I'm just going on and on pottery that doesn't have to be physical is so valuable um, because you don't get to tell yourself a story that you're the greatest. I think that's spot on. And before we wrap up, I just want to touch on one thing that came to mind while you were going through that nice summary, which is in our places, it's easy to lose touch too, because like we literally record podcasts, like coach other individuals on Zoom right now, right? And sit around and read a lot and lift or run. And what I am keenly aware of is to make sure that I do not lose touch with the the quote unquote real world and what people are actually doing and experiencing. And I think that ties into that community piece as well as like, make sure you're interacting with people who do real things in the real world. Like don't get caught in your bubble, like talk to the teachers, the baristas, the like, whoever the guy's doing the yard work, like whatever it is, like keep in touch with some semblance of reality so that you have and you're reminded of it real experiences of others that go beyond your own kind of like own world and bubble. Yeah. I mean, I think my working definition of elitism in 
at least in America these days, um, in an apolitical definition, is people that live their whole lives in a world where there are no real things. And they spend all day talking about those lives where there are no real things, no concrete results. They do a lot of navel gazing about their work. Um, and uh, if you're not holding to the ground by doing something real, it's really easy to become someone that is out of touch. And sadly, we see this happen pretty frequently. So I think it's a very low cost way to stay in touch with reality to stay humble and to find some real deep satisfaction is to develop a practice, a craft, a hobby that is real and to take it seriously and to carve out at least one time a week to do the thing, if not more. So hopefully this podcast has helped you. Hopefully it's given you some good stuff to think about it. Um, if you like what you heard, please leave a review of the podcast uh, share it with your friends, your colleagues, your family. Check out our books. The latest is The Practice of Groundedness. And um, as Steve told you all at our little interlude, if you really want to go deep on what we do at The Growth Equation, join our Patreon community at www.patreon.com slash The Growth Equation, where we have a monthly author talk, a mastermind group, guides to deep performance and resilience and all sorts of other good stuff. So with that, we will catch you next week. Happy doing real things. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.